Welcome to Arc Next Sessions. I'm Paul, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Amelia, Donna, and Ken. On today's show, which is our 50th, <laughs> we'll be discussing a selection of recent news items, including the announcement of the Driehaus Prize winner, Diller Scafidio and Renfro's just-unveiled Berkeley Art Museum, Bjarke Engel's involvement with the NFL, Architecture for Humanity's new spin-off organization, the Chapter Network, and some other news. We'll also be talking a little bit about an exciting new direction we'll be taking our editorial soon. So stay tuned for that. How's everyone doing? Excellent. Can you believe it's been 50 episodes? No. Yes. <laughs> yes I, and no. I'm, I'm proud and happy to say that we are now at 50 and can't wait until, until we're at our 100th episode and then we can start archiving and charging people to listen to back catalog episodes like every other successful podcaster. <laughs> we'll get there. We will. We'll be as successful as Marin. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, that's uh, 50. It's pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. And that's not even including all of our mini sessions. That's true. And With bonus. Our... Yeah, we had our Christmas special. Yeah, we should do a total tally and get our full count. Well, it is amazing that the mini sessions and the one-to-one -one interviews have been, you know, so much, it's so much information that is being put out there by Arconnect. And it's, it's awesome that we uh, are able to produce so much stuff for people to learn from while they do their, you know, CAD reviting. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> well, so should we to get... the next 50. Here's to it. Before we get started, Ken, how did the opening go at the herbivorous butcher? It was uh, it was pretty impressive. I was there Saturday for uh, a good eight hours, um, and they had two-hour lines out the door from ten o'clock to six p.m. Nice. And wow, not something that you see in Minnesota often. It that doesn't have anything to do with Prince, the Vikings, or <laughs> somebody else. <laughs> in January, no in less. In January, no less. Around twenty-degree weather. And they were picking up vegan meat. So pretty impressed. Got a lot of great comments, made some connections. and uh, So vegans can survive 20 degree weather. Yeah, they don't have a lot of fat on them. So it was a little surprising. But one thing I found is that, that you probably wouldn't find them at most Viking games is actually pleasant people. They were pretty accommodating. I'm sure the demographics were a little different. <laughs> yeah. And there was this one guy who drove all the way from St. Paul and I had to turn him away. Because I was working the door. So I was uh -huh. like, I'm trying to get into a New York club. It was crazy. Wow. St. Paul. Why? He just didn't look right? Wasn't wearing the right shoes? You know, it's it's kind of funny. We had to draw, make a cutoff around 515 because we had to serve the people that we had in the store already. Aww. And uh, so he, he came in and I he's, he told me how disappointed he was. And I just politely explained to him in my fake Minnesota way how sorry I was and, you know, that he had to drive 10 minutes out of his way to come. And I was going to say, you're talking <laughs> yeah. about driving all the way from St. Paul. And I was like, isn't that just like a few blocks? <laughs> yeah, pretty much. It, it was pretty much a few yeah, blocks that, away. And that's like next river, door for right? us uh, in Los Angeles. <laughs> But there was, it was funny. One woman actually flew out from San Francisco when she saw the news piece on that Saturday. She f bought a ticket to fly out and she flew out that night and she was there the next day. Wow. Got that tech money. <laughs> yeah. That, doesn't that kind of like, if you have any ecological reasons for being a vegan, then maybe you should think, yeah. think twice about <laughs> spending that jet fuel to get what well, you can probably get shipped like to you, right? Yeah. Do, do they, do they ship yes, meats? They ship now. Yeah. yeah. So great. <laughs> Awesome though. She wanted to eat the meat, but she came for the architecture. So I was pretty happy. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you can't ship the architecture. Because you have to experience it in person, right? Ken, if you're not careful, you might end up on the next New York Times' travel uh, list. It, I already told them they're they're the Carlos of Minnesota. They're probably one of the few things that actually gets will actually get exported out of the state because most things that happen in the Twin Cities from you know, tap rooms to food trucks have been done other places and it's come here. This is the first thing that kind of seems like it's going to be an authentic Minnesota export in terms of like changing, a, you know, the culture around um, food. So that is so great. Well, congratulations. Hey, congratulations to them. They, you know, it was, it was great because people were asking me how much of the vision that, that you put through and realized in this project got, you know, was fulfilled. And I said, you know, without the client, you know, we realized probably 96 to 98% of what we achieved to do. And without their steadfast refusal to buckle on, you know, crappy VE items from the general contractor or take shortcuts, you know, they really stuck with it. And I pushed them a little bit beyond their comfort zone, I think, because they'd never done a project like this. But, uh, you know, it was, it turned out pretty well for them and they were pretty satisfied. So good clients make good architecture. That's awesome. Well, it sounds like an exciting project to be or exciting client yeah. to have uh, acquired. All right, so without much further ado, shall we get to uh, discussing this week's news? 
So one of the issues that kind of came up last week in light of a few recent news items had the discussion on Arcanex news aligning with a lot of more mainstream news happening in the um, more public media having to do with the Oscars. Uh, the Oscar announcements came out of who was nominated and predictable based on prior seasons and prior years of nominations. There's a, a lot of backlash happening against the um, nominations for not including a diverse enough roster of people involved in those films. And similar on our Connect, we had a lot of conversations around diversity having to do with the some very high profile prizes that were given out at the beginning of this year, including the Pritzker, which went to Alejandro Aravena, and most recently the winner of the Driehaus Prize, Scott Merrill. The Driehaus is a much more recent prize that kind of postures itself as a antidote or um, an alternative to the Pritzker because it awards specifically traditional or classical architecture. And we spoke with Scott Merrill for the last one-to-one -one episode where I sat down with him and I shouldn't say we when it was really just me. I sat down with Scott Merrill and we spoke about what the prize meant to him and in general what his practice is like and how he conceptualizes architecture for his own practice. And I thought it was a really fascinating conversation and quickly people's commentary on it did come around to that discussion of diversity not only in representation of architects in the profession, but also in representative forms. It was a really fascinating conversation. So I don't know if, if any of you guys else had a chance to listen to the actual interview, but you, I'm sure you've seen the news. So what do you take of this recent win by Scott Merrill and anything else having to do with the recent issues that it's raised regarding diversity in the profession? Well, I, I mean, I could talk a lot about this, but um, I, I will, I've said a lot of it on the site already, but um, the interview was fantastic. Actually, for people who, just anyone who practices architecture, to listen to Scott Merrill talk about how he works is, is wonderful. It was, it was a great interview. And um, I couldn't help but, but realize that he was saying, you know, I design in this way according to these things that are important to me. And he never once said, and that's the only way to design. And I'm thinking about, of course, Mr. Schumacher saying, this is how we have to design because we are architects. We must do it this way. Scott was just like, this is my, you know, this is where my interests lay. And this is what I bring to the design process. And I thought it was nice that he sort of had a live and let live attitude about it. But in the conversation online, I just, as Scott was speaking and said the names of some of the jurors who had called him after to, to congratulate him, I couldn't help but my mind just went there like, ooh, these are a bunch of old white guys, really. And I just raised that in the comments, not well. I didn't do a good job of it. And thankfully, Mark Miller, who is a commenter, has come along and posted some more, I think, illuminating notions about, you know, the fact that classical is classical tradition, traditional, you know, they're, they're not the same thing, but that traditional work certainly is a way and has certain values that don't have to only be confined to the, you know, the Notre Dame, this prize, the classical old white men. I mean, there's a lot of really great, what I would think of as traditional or vernacular architecture that could be judged on the merits of the very humanistic view that I think the Dry House Prize is trying to reach. So I, you know, I just, I hate to put the challenge out there so bluntly, but I would love for them to get an African-American on that jury who's knowledgeable in the, uh, in these styles and see what happens. Ken, what about you? What was your reaction to this? I too like the interview and I, and I find I find his work very beautiful. I think some of the things that he said, I perhaps don't, I, I don't, re it doesn't resonate with me as much. And I would find critic, uh, find them to be a little bit limiting when he talks about human natures. It's so, you know, I, we talk about Patrick a lot and his philosophies <laughs> and, and I can't help but see that this is just another side of a different philosophy that is equally, you know, doesn't fit. I mean, how do you really pin down what is, he made it seem like it was universal. There's something universal about the nature of human beings. And that's, you know, I find that, and again, like Donna said, it's just his particular bent on it, on his take on architecture, but I just didn't, that didn't resonate so well with me. Um, and I, I, you know, I did, <laughs> I did what Donna did and I looked at the, the jurors and, you know, it goes back to what has been said even at the about the Oscars, it was brought that up as a reference point, um, Amelia. Is it that this work doesn't exist or is it a failure of the community that is deciding to look at certain types of work that excludes other people? You know, somebody posted on the website that there wasn't a whole lot of Black actors or performances that were worthy of an Oscar. But that totally is incorrect if you're going to nominate you know, um, Sylvester Stallone for Creed, there was a great director who came with a piece, great actor in that film, uh, Michael, uh, Michael B. Jordan, Michael B. Jordan. So there was a lot of good performances. It's just, if you don't look at those things, if you don't have a critical eye, or if you're too old to see those things, and if you have just a particular bent, it just, 
allows you to kind of um, have a blindness in this area, then you're not seeing the full body or full measure of, a, of the workout that exists. Paul, do you have anything to add to this? Well, I, I really enjoyed the interview um, that you had. He seemed like a very humble and grateful guy for, for receiving the award. His work seems quite strong, uh, even though that's not really the kind of style that, that I lean towards. On the issue of diversity that's been coming up a lot, I find it to be just a very, very difficult topic to to even talk about because there are, you know, when it comes to a subjective decision, you know, about who to give an award to, you know, it's, uh, I feel like it's hard to know, you know, if the individuals that are selected are decided with a little bias, either racist bias or some other type of prejudice, or if it's a fair decision. I feel like I'm not the right person to ask that because I'm a white man <laughs> and I'm, I'm not, you know, I haven't suffered that type of, that type of prejudice, but it's something that I think needs to be discussed because I think it's, I think it's really clear that people that don't suffer from prejudice have a really hard time wrapping their heads around that. So I'm glad it's a topic that's coming up and I think it's an opportunity for a lot of people to learn more about, about how to fairly judge artists, I guess, in, in this situation. And, and one more thing too. Again, we with the Pritzker, we we saw this, and now we're seeing it with this particular prize as well. And and I don't want to impugn anyone's integrity because Scott wasn't on the jury, but I think at least two of the jurors on this project have worked with or are directly responsible for one of uh, Scott's projects at Seaside. So I think it's it's hard to suggest that this isn't about an inside, you know, this kind of cadre of individuals kind of self-nominating each other in some kind of incestuous architectural circle jerk. If two of those people you've worked with on a very, very well-known project in Southern, in Florida. So I think it, you know, that's what we have to start kind of breaking apart. And that's when people start talking about diversity, part of the diversity is not just selecting a diverse body of work, but getting a deliberately diverse group of people to look for those bodies of work. Because if you don't have people of color on these juries or women represented on these juries, those experiences and those ideas about what is traditional architecture, like Marcus pointed out and Donna has pointed out in the post, don't get recognized because, you know, there's different notions. But if all of these particular individuals align with one particular idea about what is classical or what is traditional, then you're never going to have a diversity of work because they're all going to speak. It's like, you know, speaking French and then throwing a guy in there who, you know, you're not going to throw a guy in there who speaks Spanish because it's just they don't speak the same language. So I think part of that is this kind of, you know, this go around of this this type of thing. And it's a little, I think that's what's frustrating about it. And I think that like, it's, we're very right to try to figure out or try to just stay from the get-go that these issues are difficult for us to talk about as well, because we also don't represent the most diverse set of podcasters, but I'm really, I can, I can. <laughs> well said. <laughs> oh, snap. No, well, I mean, I, I don't think that necessarily means we shouldn't be talking about it at all. I just feel like, I just feel that that should be stated up front, but we're going to continue discussing these issues most specifically with um, the next one-to-one -one interview with Elsie Owusu, who was the London-based architect who last winter, last December, made accusations against Reba for, and she's a council member at Reba for their allegedly racist uh, actions. And so this conversation, as much as we can, we hope to keep it going and, and invite people on the site to engage with us and try to just bring these conversations to the forefront. But now, and I, we wish we could devote a whole show to this, but we've got some, a lot more news to get through. So so that episode, just to make it clear, that's going to be coming up this Monday, right? Yes. Okay. So if you're interested in talking or listening to more issues about diversity, make sure to listen to that Monday's episode of One to One. So next up in our list of news from this week is news of the just opened Berkeley Art Museum designed by Donna's favorite, Diller's Cofidio and Renfro. <laughs> It actually is opening next week with an exhibition titled Architecture for Life. So the building combines the original structure with this new metal-wrapped extension uh, featuring a, a huge digital screen at the street's edge. Immediately after posting this, I have to say it was, it was posted with the, the photograph that I guess our editorial team could acquire at the time, which was a pretty poor photograph from the sky. Immediately the <laughs> aerial... The uh, immediately there was a lot of negative response, um, including Donna. You you chimed in right away. So maybe maybe Donna, you can tell us how you really feel. 
I'm sorry. You know, I think this building is terrible. I just think it's terrible. Unfortunately, the comments only make it sound worse in in uh, what we've uh, what we've seen. And now someone compared it to a um, basically an intestine pooping out video, and that's what I see now. Whenever <laughs> I look at the building, it's just a long intestine, and yeah, it's pooping out video at the end. You know, and I said, and I defend this, Diller Scafidio, as mad as I am at them over folk art museum. The project they did here was fantastic. It's a great little project. The Lincoln Center work they did, fantastic. But this is just such a, it just feels so like late 90s to me. It's, I just think it's bad. Well, it's interesting. This project was actually, the partner in charge of this was Charles Renfro, as opposed to, you know, some of the other projects recently in the office, like the Broad was, was, was Liz. uh, Liz, Yeah. Do you guys see a, a difference in these buildings, maybe based on on who was overseeing them? It's just a <laughs> no, because it, the same tactics are used. I think the lifting, the kind of the pulling up of the skin, and kind of it's done at Lincoln Center. It's done even at the Broad. It's done. They kind of do this 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 thing now. Even the folding plates that seems to become their signature. This the, the way. I mean, what I saw that actually, I I don't find uh, a whole lot of fault with this project, other than I rather like the uh, first rendering where the striations were actually Donna called it beached whale, beach whale, and I actually like the idea of that the linear lines as opposed to I was saying I like the striations of a, on the whale as opposed to uh, the segmentation of like a millipede. It's something right. that doesn't it just doesn't feel right to me or an intestine. Yeah, or an intestine. <laughs> <laughs> so I've read a lot of the comments and i've read some uh, some of the other uh, articles about it and you know this is in line with i mean from the very get-go diller and scavidio in fact i went back and i looked at my flesh book today just to kind of see if i was correct in this but going back to their earlier projects there's always been this intersection of architecture and and uh, technology and video and so i saw this i'm like oh of course this is definitely them um this is their kind of thing you know, I think when I, whenever I look at this project, I see that one image and everybody responds to that one image. And then you see the other images that were posted on uh, by Julia. And then you look at Mimi's, uh, Zeger's images of the interior. It really does look nice. I think my only real criticism about the project is like, I like the rendering more. And I, I wish that it wasn't so carefully and surgically placed within the building. There's something about, I resonate more with... Um, with uh, Labius Woods and how he's created these um, kind of appendages and, and, and carbuncles on the sides of buildings. You feel more integrated into the building. And the, so there's this kind of, it's a little bit dirtier, a little bit grittier. And this is so carefully placed and like, it doesn't really feel like it has any, you don't really feel the intersection of the existing building with this kind of draped uh, metal skin. But, you know, looking at that one image, I, you really, I, in fact, I think being there would tell you a whole different story about the building as well. But I think, you know, generally people's reaction on the website is pretty negative regarding just about anything that anyone does anymore that I don't even trust their opinions. Well, uh, personally, I mean, from the photos that I've seen, I don't mind the interior. The The interior seems interesting. I find the exterior a little awkward, but I've also felt the same way about some of the other recent Dylan Scafidio buildings. Uh, but one thing I, I wish is that the recession didn't hit and we could have realized Toyo Ito's design for this. He was originally given the, the commission for this project, but because of the budget and the timing, late 2008, they scrapped that and went with Dylan Scafidio Renfro, which uh, were offering a much cheaper alternative. But uh, Ito's design was was always, always really struck me as a beautiful design. Yeah, I am so disappointed by this building for many reasons, but very few of them have to do specifically with anything of Dillard's Scafidio's work. I just, I'm, I'm a little bit biased. I went to school in Berkeley and spent many, many hours in the uh, Mario Chiampi, Chiampi, the Mario Chiampi, the former building that housed the Berkeley Art Museum, which was this amazing, brutalist, just crazy, sprawling column fest that was a total, just, it was like an Escher thing being inside. It was so strange and so ill-fitted for an actual museum, but such a wonderful space nonetheless. Donna, I believe, had an installation of one of your friends, uh, like a former sitting scape and stuff. It had a, it had an amazing platform for doing a lot of interior performance or like staged events. It was just an amazing building. So to follow up with something that I honestly can't believe was realized in a place that has something like Telegraph Avenue or the kind of culture that the kind of street culture that Berkeley has to put a giant video screen on the street seems completely antithetical to everything I associate with Berkeley. Like there have been protests around just putting like a Panda Express on campus. Like there's just like, there's so many other things that I imagined would have caused precedent to not allow something like this. And yet here it is. 
And so it just, from a transition from the prior structures that house these two facilities, because it's not just the Berkeley Art Museum, it's also the Pacific Film Archive. Those two facilities used to be housed separately. The Pacific Film Archive was formerly in this very modest, almost hangar-like building on a tucked away space in campus. And that was just, I think that it's just so unfortunate that, yeah, the Toyo Ito design wasn't able to be realized in the context of just less money and that this is what we got. So I'm really sad. <laughs> But I recognize that most of that just has to do with my personal association with the space. But I encourage people to read Mimi's review as well, simply because I know she's also familiar with Berkeley and has a sensitivity to, to Berkeley as a, as a place for this museum to be located. So so it goes. So just, just as a sort of reminder to all of us that um, of how media works and how you can say something that can be held against you later, there's an interview in Fasco Design with uh, Charles Renfro about this building. And he says, adaptive reuse is a way to avoid profligacy and wastefulness, which I 100% agree with. I mean, I think it's great that they were able to adaptively reuse a building. And then he says, we're too quick to throw away in our culture. Finding ways to save buildings is something we should be doing. And number one, hmm. this building was done because we're throwing away the beautiful Mario Chiampi brutalist structure because it can't be, it's too expensive to upgrade for um, seismic reasons. Mm. But number two, this is the firm that just threw away the Folk Art Museum, a masterpiece, so that they could build an art garage that now isn't going to get built anyway. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I'm mindful that when I say things on the podcast, they can come back to haunt me many, many years later. And I think in this interview, Charles said some things that I immediately thought, wow, you are just shoving your foot in your mouth as fast as you can. <laughs> like, uh, Anyway, well, it's, it's, yeah. But I do agree with you, Paul. I think those interior red spaces with the conflicting planes are quite uh, interesting and cool for, for museum interior space. Well, as you alluded, we can move on to the, uh, the next point, which is the MoMA redesign in New York that's taking the place of the Folk Art Museum. So they, there's more bad news coming out of out of uh, Diller Scafidio and Renfro's office, which is that many of the kind of fun and exciting elements of that project, if you can find any, uh, Donna, I don't know, <laughs> um, have been, uh, they just announced have been scrapped. So, I mean, that's including the retractable glass walls and moving floors, uh, the fourth floor gray box, which uh, was intended to be a gallery and theater and also visible to the to the street, as well as uh, the street facing public entrance into the sculpture garden. So what do you guys think about that? We talked about this project before, haven't we? Like about a year ago, two years ago? With uh, with Killian. Killian. Oh, yeah. Well, we also, uh, did we talk about it with uh, Billy Tian? And... No, we didn't. No, we, no, we, we specifically yeah, just okay. stayed away we from that. that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> sore, sore past. You know, it, and I think the city has given money for this project. I don't think, I think there's some, either some financing from the city or some kind of give backs or something from, I seem to recall that that was part of uh, the reasons why they made these gestures to the public is to to kind of up, uh, allay some fears that this was going to be just a gigantic expansion by MoMA. You know, it's, it's, it's distressing that a firm of this nature who started out doing fantastic small projects that again, talking about the intersection of art, technology, and architecture, has found a way to have a weight placed on them about, uh, around the bottom line. I don't know. I mean, I, I'd like to say that I would, I would walk away from a project like this if, after all these things that were promised to the, to the, the citizens who live, in that, uh, who live in New York City. All these different public amenities were going to be going away, and that my name was going to be attached to that, that I would still I would walk away from that. I, I can't say that. I mean, they've got bills to pay. They've got staff to pay for. And maybe that's where they're led. And it's a shame because they used to do really nice work that really challenged you on so many different levels. And this is such a such a, a sad, a sad commentary about what happens when you achieve a level of success and notoriety and your projects get bigger, the scale of your office grows, and you can't walk away from things that you would have never have done. 30 years ago. Mm. Yeah. You know, I think this really is the, I think this is the kind of the, we're on the downhill side for this institution because I think that it will become this place that nobody can get into anymore. And it will just be a place for the people who live in that building that's going to sit above this mess for their private use and for their private enjoyment. And the public should just not pay the, the $60 or whatever it's going to cost to get in there for four hours. Um, it's going to come to that. And, and you know what? There's plenty of other museums around the country to go see. There's no reason why you should spend a dime in the MoMA. And in fact, I would never go back there ever again. <laughs> Them's fighting words, Ken. Yeah, I mean, that's the one thing you can count on in New York City is that, you know what? The, the, the museum over by the High Line is fantastic. 
You've got the new museum. You've got the, the Whitney over there on the High Line. You've got the Met. I mean, you know what? Honestly, who wants to be around Midtown anyway? They're just a bunch <laughs> of tightwad jerk-offs who go in and want to stand out in front of Fox News and, and uh, you know, rah-rah the, the idiots over there. So just stay away from Midtown, stay along the periphery, stay on, near the park, and go to Brooklyn. There you go. <laughs> Problem solved. Yeah, I don't have anything really to add except that, Ken, I think you're right that, uh, you know, firms, it's easy to bash people for making certain decisions. Firms and you know, I, I used to teach pro practice and we talked a lot about ethics. And when it comes to, you know, saying yes or no to a project or and saying no to it means you have to lay someone off. Obviously, that's, you know, you, you get into these challenging situations as professionals. And I lately have been enough involved in some, we have a new mayor in our city and I've been aware of some things going on around the administration change that, you know, that thing they say about sausage being made, you don't want to see sausage be made. Mm. That, that so many of these kinds of decisions are that, you know, that that kind of sausage that's maybe pooping a video out onto the sidewalk too. <laughs> so yeah, I I don't have much to add either. I, I said all I really needed to say on the post, which was just swearing. Which thanks to podcast the FCC not yet regulating podcasting, you can say it again here. In I could quote, actually but say, yeah. <laughs> but I, but, but I won't. we'll we'll direct listeners to the original post to get it. I think the yeah. tone and the accenting is perfect in the in the text post. <laughs> Um, I'm actually noticing a relationship between our next this news story and our and our next news story, which has to do with the um, somewhat controversial uh, pairing between Bjarke Ingels Group and the Washington Redskins, or as they're often referred to in print, the Washington Pigskins, by publications who refuse to refer to the, the name of the team as feeling that it is inherently racist and therefore not something they want to put in their print. We had a, a post recently about this issue from um, that we linked to from the Washington Post, written by their art and architecture critic Philip Kennicott who basically questions whether or not Big can design for such a client that is so clearly opposed in its ethics, and uh, he brings up almost morals, to what Big supposedly stands for in this world of architecture as a so supposedly socially progressive firm. And he has this line from the article referring to organizations such as the NFL, a private club for one percenters that bullies municipalities and treats its own players' health with indifference. And he claims that it's unfair and, and uh, in fact, problematic for Big to be partnering with such a firm as, or such an organization as a client. And it just, I re when reading that line again, I just thought of, and when Ken, how you were referring to MoMA, I just like thought of them as the same thing. And it's a little bit problematic, uh, of course, when we start. There have been a lot of comments uh, in regards to this particular news post of kind of finding faults with the, how the article itself is written and how Kennecott's criticism is put together, which I find a little bit interesting given how in other news posts, people are so quick to jump on Bjarke Ingels in particular, not specifically big, but personally Bjarke Ingels in order to make a claim of how terrible him or his work are is because of things that are supposedly not even related to what's happening in the news post. So I thought it was an interesting scenario where the commenters almost came to the defense of Big for just being businesslike and just going about business as usual because that's architecture, business as usual. You need a client and if they have money on the table, you want to do the project so you can do other projects. So I'm very interested to hear what you guys kind of took from this and whether you've been embroiled in the quagmire of comments. The, uh, well, first, I, I think it's important to note that Big probably knows more about a canned ham than he knows about a football. <laughs> <laughs> Danes know a lot about canned ham, by the way. <laughs> okay, see, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> so the, the idea that he can speak to anything about what is going on in American football and relate it to somehow there's a loftier goal around, you know, health and well-being is just, he should shut up a little bit. I mean, and, and take a cue from, you know, take a cue from other architects who don't say a whole lot until after, you know, they get until after they lose their uh, their award or a contract and get taken from Tok uh, from Japan again. So wait for that to happen. And then um, but, you know, what can you say about this? This is pretty I think part of what you're hearing is that there's this kind of your hands thrown up in the air, Amelia. I mean, when you're reading the post, it's like, what do you expect? Mm. The moral kind of vagaries of architects shift with whatever we know about He's got a new office in New York. He's got to pay for that staff. I'm sure rent's not cheap. You know, as far as we know, the Redskins aren't killing any Native peoples, you know, and, and whether or not he takes this contract is not going to solve that issue. So I think that's kind of where people are kind of going. But then again, at the same time, you know, we're dealing with 
probably most of the posters, most architects in this profession are white. So there isn't really a great diversity in even speaking to Native people's issues or people of color. It is kind of thought, you know, in a very Trumpian kind of way. So it doesn't surprise me that there's this kind of uh, this hypocrisy on Arconnect about big. Donna, what do you think of this? You know, I don't have a whole lot to say about it. I am embarrassed to admit this is the first time I really consciously realized that the the team that's called the pigskins, I love that. I just heard about that term around this controversy, and I love that they are called the pigskins because some newspapers and print media just say we can't print. That'd be like printing a the N-word or something. So calling them the pigskins, I think is hilarious. But I didn't realize until this controversy came up that this was not a Washington State football team. That's how close to football I am. <laughs> I don't follow sports. I'm not a sports ball person. Sports ball. <laughs> sports ball. I'm just not into sports ball. But that article on the site, I have not gone into the comments there because I, I think it is a lot of, it's a, it's a lot of topics around architecture that are things we need to talk about. I think this question of ethics and practice and turning down a job when you really need to, you know, keep your employees employed, uh, it's, it's difficult. It's difficult to be in practice. I think Bjarke has done a great job of getting lots of high-profile projects. And I do think if there's a firm that could reimagine the stadium in an interesting, more beneficial to the city way, Big is certainly a great firm to do that. But I really have to go all the way back to the base question of why are we building stadiums anyway? You know, for the most part, they do benefit the 1%. They do public money to private hands of wealthy individuals. And I just I'm very anti sports ball in those ways. So (laughs) that's really the only thing I have to say. Paul, do you have any sports ball commentary to add? Well, I, I mean, I just wonder if this, if the decision to hire Big was an architectural decision or more of a PR move, because Bjarka has established himself as a very charismatic and generally likable character among, you know, people that, that watch his presentations and listen to him talk. And maybe they're uh, seeing him as a, as a friendly, fresh young face for, a, for an organization that's been dealing with a lot of controversy and, and backlash. So I don't know, maybe their agenda is a little bit beyond just, you know, the, the design of their new stadium. No. <laughs> Dan Snyder knows more about Indian casinos than he knows about Bjarke Angles. So I, I'm cynical about that. Yeah. I, I've completely, I've fall right on like, yeah, he sees Bjarke on TV. He's like, hey, who's that guy? <laughs> and, he's, and you're right. I mean, but, but you're right, though. He's very personable. You know, he doesn't come across like a complete tool and he's very engaging. And he, <laughs> it, it almost like he can almost hypnotize you with his words. He's, he sounds so sincere that, yeah, I think, you know. Yeah, like I, said, I have to jump in, though, and defend Bjarke because I met Bjarke many, it's been like six or seven or eight years ago with uh, together with Vado Retro and a couple of other art connectors in Louisville when he came down there. This is before he got super famous. He is a lovely, gracious, wonderful, charming person, fun to hang around with, absolutely personable and totally likable. And you guys, you guys interviewed him, Amelia. Oh, and, yeah. Uh, I don't think there's any any denying that. I mean, has anybody yeah. ever? Yeah, he's he's a very, very likable guy. You know, I I'm absolutely sure that his personality and his likability is is a part of the reason why he's so successful. Absolutely. And, you know, I just took on a freelance job this weekend and the guy told me today when I met with him, you know, you were just so engaging when we met with you that we felt like we wanted to go with you. So, yeah, if you if people out there, listeners, if you can be polite and charming and engaging with people. They might hire you. Absolutely. Very true. <laughs> Is that what it takes? Damn. Yeah, Ken, we know. Well, you know, there's exceptions to the rule. You're the one with people waiting three hours to get into your uh, into your building. Amelia, do you have anything to add to this uh, news story? No. Okay. I'm, I'm going to, I'll probably, if we ever write about this again, I'll probably ask that we write pigskins, though. <laughs> yeah. Put an update I, I, in the style guide. That's a good point. Well, moving on, we announced on the news uh, a few days ago that the Architecture for Humanity, which officially shut down last last year, but continued kind of unofficially through its chapter network, has officially formed a new organization called the Chapter Network. And a new director has been appointed, uh, Garrett Jacobs. Garrett Jacobs uh, is a Tulane grad, and he will be joining us soon on the podcast, right? On the one-to-one podcast? Yeah, I was briefly in touch with Garrett recently to um, have him on for a one-to-one interview. And I was just doing some really brief background research on him. And he sounds like a really interesting guy. Paul, you mentioned he went to Tulane and I read a short interview with him previously mentioning that he moved to Tulane to go to school literally within days of Hurricane Katrina happening. And so that kind of became a very formative 
period and into his architecture career, but also his just community engagement career. Um, he's previously been involved with the organization Code for America as well. And so our interview, I'm really interested to talk to him and delve into these things a little bit more deeply and, and see how Architecture for Humanity's goals and vision can be continued onward in a new way. Well, it'll be interesting to see how he how he is as a director, because I know that he's got big shoes to fill, because uh, speaking of charisma, Cameron Sinclair, I think, you know, he did a pretty good job leading Architecture for Humanity, partially due to his his uh, personality and his um, his charisma in general, his great, you know, speaking abilities. So we'll see if, if uh, Garrett can bring that in to, to the new chapter network. Donna and Ken, as the practicing architects in this group of us, have you guys ever had an opportunity to work with Architecture for Humanity? Ken, you did something with them in Minneapolis, didn't you? Well, when I first first moved out here, I, I went to a couple of meetings um, when they were trying to build a hospital over in, uh, I want to say, West Africa. I think they had a um, one of the chapters here in Minneapolis was pretty engaged with doing that. And that was with, uh, I think, the assistance of uh, Barry Lehrman. But uh, after that, they were a little more motivated than I was at the time. I just wasn't fully, I wasn't, you know, still kind of coming to terms with being in Minneapolis and understanding that and starting a new job. And it really didn't fit me at the time. But I I think this is going to be great. I'm glad they're doing this. I'm glad he's taking it up. Yeah, I have never worked at all with with, um, Architecture for Humanity in any sense. But the thing I'm taking from this, I'm excited that it's still, the organization is moving forward, even in in a slightly different form. But I want to go back to the Kennecott article about, the stadium and uh, the fact that he said that there's this great new social progressivism that seems to be common among architects right now. I mean, if you take that sentence, just that sentence out of the article, I think that's completely true. I absolutely think that this great social progressivism is something that's just continuing to grow in our field. And so I will take this news as evidence of more of that which I think is good. Donna, I hate to throw mud on that recent statement, but oh my God, this next news post that we're going to talk about today, it was what I thought when we initially posted, it would be relatively innocuously received. This news post was the Seattle Builds Village for the Homeless, uh, which is something that we've reported on many times before, where a city that has a history of dealing with chronic homelessness will create, has a few cities across the US have tried this. They've experimented with creating somewhat minimal housing units for the homeless to occupy, either for free or for a very limited fee, ideally in a way to transition their, from homelessness into affordable housing through whatever government programs exist. And this has, you know, met a lot of uh, controversy in, in its application, but for, in a lot of times has been very successful in kind of providing a means of actually breaking out of homelessness for a few cities that have tried it. So this post uh, referred to a recent effort in Seattle where this church group had built on their property a few tiny homes that wouldn't even constitute as as having facilities for homes. It was really just a, a room with a lock on it and the ability for people to stay there for, I believe, like $90 a month. And the reaction on to this article um, on Arconnect was really fascinating because there was very little allowance for the social progressivism that might have otherwise characterized the kind of project like this, which is kind of a, a palliative move for homelessness, right? It's like you're not solving homelessness by giving people transitional housing if their mean if their reason for being homeless is more serious than simply lacking a immediate shelter, but has made something to do with chronic uh, mental health issues or such, which isn't, and there isn't necessarily, this isn't to suggest that there is one single cause or one blanket cause for homelessness, but people were, seemed to react a little bit in a way that suggested that, oh, this is just, they found a loophole to get around building codes. Like, why is this model of building good enough for homelessness but, or homeless, formerly homeless people, but not good enough for my granny flat in my, on my property or uh, my home office or something like that? So it raised some really interesting questions around what is simply what is allowed in the building code versus what is a, not to say that these are opposite things, but what is also just a good way to deal with emergency housing situations such as chronic homelessness. So it was a really interesting conversation happening in the comments to what I I would not have anticipated would have garnered such a response. So I, I encourage people to check that out. Donna and Ken, do you have any particular response to this after that very loaded setup? I would just say, I, I think of it sort of like a needle program, right? A clean needle program that it, it, yeah, it's a way bigger problem, but there has been enough success in other communities with just taking homeless people and giving them a place to live so that then they can have a place to store their material goods, have a warm place to sleep at night, give them a, just enough stability so that they can then get into a drug treatment or a mental treatment program of some sort. So, you know, I, I see it as a, a clean needle program. It's not solving the root problem, but it is taking a lot of the pain away, I think, and a lot of the danger. So frankly, to me, the thought of being homeless and then having a place that has heat 
and electricity and a lock on the door. A lock on the door is a huge thing to have when you don't have anywhere to put your stuff. So yeah, I overall think I'm excited about it. Ken? Well, having kind of briefly breezed through the comments, I I dare say probably none of those people have ever experienced or been on the brink of homelessness. And as someone who can speak to that um, as a when I was a teenager, this is pretty important. And, and you know, Minneapolis is, codes are easily changed, <laughs> especially in cities. I mean, uh, Minneapolis has changed the code. So now that we can now, on my property, I can actually build a, a, small, a small home for uh, like a mother-daughter kind of thing. And that's what they call it. So, but, you know, to provide just the kind of, ba- it's not even heat. I mean, it's just getting out of the weather, getting out of the way. And some seems like some of these spaces are even just out of the way. So they're not garishly placed. And maybe that's what they should do. Maybe they should put them on, you know, on uh, on ritzy street corners so that they're more in your face. But yeah, I, I struggle with people who are so hateful towards um, groups of people that, you know, that are down on this, down on their luck, um, have hit a run of bad. And these these aren't for, you know, moms with kids. These are really for very transient populations that tend to not situate themselves in one location for long periods of time. So I don't understand the problem with these. Paul, do you have any thoughts? I'm not that familiar with this story, but uh, from what I've heard, based on your description of it and, and your comments, it, uh, I mean, it sounds like a like a positive program to address an issue that is extremely complicated. Well, and today, and it's interestingly enough, I don't know if anybody caught this on the news, but one of this, I think it's in Seattle, homeless camp near um, near the airport. Yeah. There was a shooting there. Oh, wow. No, I haven't heard about that. Mm. Yeah. I think two people were, were killed. And, you know, it's too early to say, um, don't want to, you know, get out on a limb, but who knows what that could have been about. It could have been about somebody who's, you know, wanting to get rid of the homeless and went in there and decided, I'm going to just get rid of the homeless. It could fights among the homeless. But you ha- we have to deal with this, this segment of the population. You know, the, it might be turning around, the economy might be turning around for me and a lot of other people, but it certainly has to turn around for the poorest of the poor. Yeah, I think that we've seen projects like this take off in other cities, and it's it's really just something that is meant as a crisis response. And so if it can provide any type of immediate prevention of, say, deaths or harm or however way, I, I think it's hard to uh, to justify something that has been donor-funded and volunteer-built on a church property to really, like, not, not <laughs> exist. But yeah, let's let's move on to the next uh, news Thing piece for the day. About, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so our, our last piece for the day, last major news piece to discuss today, is something of a, causing a bit of a sensation on the site, is recently the winner was announced of the um, World War I Centennial Memorial Competition in D.C., and the winner was a 25-year-old architect by the name of Joseph Weishar, I hope I'm saying that right, who is in partnership with a uh, sculptor, Sabine Howard. Joseph is a member of the Chicago-based firm Brennan Stool and Lynch. And what was most interesting about this news piece seems only to do with the age of the winner attached to the competition. So the design itself, really no one seems to be directly talking about in the comments. It's more of just a discussion of Clearly, this has to be some type of PR move by the firm itself to put this 25-year-old in the center of the, of, the, of the discussion. But I would like, if possible, for us to just talk about the design, actual what is actually being proposed here, and less about, you know, identity politics of the 25-year-old supposedly <laughs> attached to it. So the design itself is pretty modest. It uh, does little to change the park that the memorial will go into. It's essentially a U-shaped frieze sculpture that Sabine Howard will will do of depicting soldiers and people involved in, in World War One uh, underneath the theme, the weight of sacrifice. And it's really just uh, someone, I think in the comments, referred to it as Maya Lin Light, in that it's basically <laughs> like a, a monolith going around the site and cutting slightly into the landscape to create different levels, but otherwise very subtle, very non-dramatic. And will supposedly involve sculpture and a few other elements that will be that will be designed based on input from the greater community. So of course, we can also talk about the age thing, but <laughs> what do you guys think of this? Oh, no, did I take everyone's opinions? No, I said, it's okay. okay. <laughs> it's, no, I, I, I mm, you know, I think age. you're right. It's, it's, it is a very subtle sort of insertion. I think um, there has been a lot of concern over the destruction of that park by the landscape architect whose name is escaping me right now. And I don't know how much this actually saves that work, but it does seem like it's not a super controversial insertion. And I think it's, you know, it looks, 
from the images in the, and again, we just, didn't we talk a little bit earlier about how the rendering of something never ends up looking like the real thing? Yeah. The images of how it will look are very, again, beguiling. They're very lovely. And I think there's a sort of nice parallel of moving from Maya Lin's Vietnam with the names of everyone, with the text being the content, to now the images being the content. Because we have, of course, moved into a very image-based world right now. So there might be something to be said there about uh, how we consume media these days. But it seems uh, it, it seems like a very nice, and, and, you know, congratulations to a 25-year-old. I think it's fantastic. All I could think about was going into your boss in the morning and saying, hey, I just won a, uh, <laughs> won a competition for a Washington, D.C. National Memorial. Like that, that'd be a nice conversation to have. Ken, do you have any thoughts? You know, I think it seems like something Justin Shubo would like. <laughs> honestly no i don't think he will no i think it's it's should we do an over under on what uh response will be it's very safe it's yeah it has a very it just seems dated to me and i think i i I think it's nice it just seems it's gonna sound pretty bad but i just think you know, we've all seen various memorials, and I don't know if anyone's ever been to the Irish Hunger Memorial in New York City. No. I haven't been, but it looks incredible. It is beautiful. It is subtle. It is beautiful. And it is just, every time I go, every time I hit New, uh, New Jersey and I take the ferry over from Hoboken, I go to that memorial because it is just, it just it resonates so strongly with me that this, by comparison, seems forgettable. And I think those images are too disconnected from a, First off, the memorial, no one, no, I don't even think there's any, anyone alive from this war. I would imagine there isn't from this war. So who is this, to, who is this memorial to? Not that we have to make memorials to, to people that are alive, but there was a real effort in trying to craft a World War II memorial for veterans that were dying. And there was a real push by that generation to do this. And this one just is more forgettable to me than the Korean War Memorial. And I actually, there's elements of the Korean War Memorial that I, I, I rather think are quite successful and haunting. This one is very flat and very not of today. It just seems like this was something that would have been built in the 1930s. Mm. That's funny. The Korean is my actually my favorite memorial. I love it. I love the big, the figures, the slightly yeah. larger than life-size yeah. figures are incredibly moving, in my opinion. Um, but yeah, there is a relationship here because that also has sort of photographs etched into the uh, backdrop marble. So interesting. Well, I'm glad you're honest about it, Ken. Paul, Amelia, what do you guys think? I'm not a big fan of literal references in memorials. Um, I I like uh, memorials to be, I think that they should be emotional and and a little bit spiritual, I guess, however you want to take that. So the, the etched photographs are not something that I enjoy at all in this. And, and I think that the way that the uh, memorials laid out with the landscaping, it doesn't seem to move me too much. I'm not a, not a big fan. I think it's unfortunate that people are making comparisons to Maya Lin's, which I actually really like, the Vietnam Memorial. But maybe the references aren't actually comparing the two in a similar way, are they? Just... They're, they're making a kind of uh, derogatory yeah. comparison. And I, I think what kind of strikes me about this is that, yeah, exactly, who is this for? Because if it's for somehow an American representation of the role of, the role of war, in World War One, it seems to be kind of not as pun- it's not as strong as it could be. And it's, I think it's a little bit and Donna, you're talking about representing these, th- uh, these images as images rather than, you know, through text. And I think what was so effective about something, just to continue the Myelin comparison because it's in fresh in people's minds, <laughs> what is so affecting about the Myelin use of text is that you see how much text it is. So there's something very spatial about the text. This to me seems like incredibly, yeah, old fashioned and almost, yeah, something that would be much more of like a almost a propagandistic move of just depicting, you know, the, 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 the soldiers, the brave soldiers and the people back at home, it, at least what is depicted in the renderings. And of course, we can't assume that that's what we'll end up being. But the figures that are as they're depicted are in scenes of either like heroic action or, you know, valiant saving of other soldiers or just the, you know, people standing at home waiting with expectant gazes. And it's something that I feel is not necessarily 
Like I, I'm, I understand that I have a certain privilege of speaking this in a very removed way, but at the same time, I'm still older than the guy who won this competition. And so I, I don't know if I, that means I'm any way more uh, likely or allowed to speak about the, the weight of something like a great world war, which I don't think I am. But at the same time, I feel like this is a huge missed opportunity to relay some of that significance and, and gravitas of that event that is now, yeah, exactly as you can, as Ken, as you mentioned, no longer really lived by the experience of any person in the U.S. And I hope that I'm correct with that. I hope I'm not <laughs> leaving out any somehow surviving World War I veterans. But anyway, well, it's it's something that we'll we'll see how it goes. As, as is mentioned in the news post, it has fundraised around a million dollars of the 30 to 35 that it supposedly needs in order to be realized by the centennial in November of 2018. So I think that's all the, the news that we wanted to discuss today. I hope that everyone isn't too exhausted and, and Donna, I can almost hear the the rocks clinking in your bourbon glass. The ice, um, but the we, ice but, is about to hit the glass. <laughs> but I, have, I have one more announcement to make uh, more generally about some upcoming changes to editorial on our Connect. We are starting to adopt a more thematic model for how we bring you guys original editorial and news. So each month we're going to be hosting a particular theme on the site. Think of it kind of like a monthly magazine issue where each month we'll approach a different theme from our various editorial angles and with our different writers and bringing you a lot of our regular content, a regular series, but with focuses on a specific theme. And so for February, we're going to launch with our furniture issue, focusing particularly on furniture. So if you have a piece uh, that you're sitting on and you think would be a good fit for us, um, you can send it to me and we will be happy to review it to feature on the site. But otherwise, we've got a bunch of great content lined up, including podcasting. So look to that on the site and uh, let us know what you think. All right. Yeah, looking forward to that. So did you guys try to come up with a name like, you know, furniture in February? There's an alliteration there, but was there like a February-niture kind of? <laughs> <laughs> like I don't, a, I don't know, Like Donna. an October kind of thing? Like October, exactly. I'm thinking Furnerary. Like, yeah, Furnerary. Furnerary. <laughs> no, we, had, we did not, we have not yet settled on a holistic branding name for such a thing. But Donna, if you're sitting on a great furniture pun, then you can combine the words furniture in February in a way that is titillating, then please send it along. Listeners, send in your suggestions. Okay. So that is another episode, the end of our 50th episode, halfway to 100. (laughs) Thanks to everybody for listening. And uh, thanks to my co-hosts. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, you can reach us on Twitter at our uh, Twitter account, ArcSessions, or with hashtag ArcConnectSessions. You can also send us an email to connect at ArcConnect.com. And if you enjoy the podcast, please consider rating us on iTunes. Yeah. And stay tuned for the next one-to-one episode that comes out on Monday. You have to subscribe to that separately. So look for our Connect Sessions one-to-one in iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. So thanks to everybody for listening and talk to you next week. Thanks a lot, guys. Great to talk to you guys. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye.